Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season two as we delve back into the world of sports coaching and rugby. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application and implementation. As always, I'm delighted to have another three excellent individuals join me this week. So gents, if you'd like to introduce yourself and tell us what is your current role. Hello, I'm Mark Bennett. I've uh, developed the performance development systems and I pretty much run that. So my main job is working globally um, to support in organisations and teams in sport and in the corporate world. So I am Stuart Armstrong. I am the, uh, I'm currently uh, the head of coaching at Sport England, uh, or actually my official title is strategic lead for workforce transformation, but no one knows what that means. So head of coaching is probably better. Uh, hi, I'm Colin Moran. I am the training and education manager with the Irish Rugby Football Union. Gents, absolute pleasure to have you all on. Uh, excited to see what you bring to the discussion. Uh, for anyone listening, you'll be delighted to know the terrible jokes are gone. But before we get started, just a reminder to check out the blurb for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality podcasts. Uh, Mark, we're coming to you first. What content are you presenting? Well, um, I'm going to read it out because often I get it wrong. Um, but uh, I did a podcast a while ago. Um, funnily enough, not one of Stuart's many podcasts we've been chatting on, uh, another one. And one of the podcasters took a quote that I said. Um, and then one of my antagonists on Twitter um, highlighted that actually John Dewey said something similar. Um, we do not learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. And what, what my quote was, we reflect on, uh, uh, we don't learn from experience, we learn from our interpretation of the experience. And it got me to really start to delve into how many people misinterpret that um, or don't understand how to apply that to be effective. So obviously reviewing, particularly now, Phil, has become even more focused because of the shutdown. There's been a lot more video reviews with teams that can't get, get to play, et cetera, and coaches in reflection. And it, it always picks up to the point of when we're talking about reflecting on experience in particular, when are we thinking about reflecting on the experience? Because we know, consciously or subconsciously, we're, we're reflecting on it in the moment, right? But often a lot of the coaching interventions are either on video well afterwards or when that phase of play has stopped, then the coach starts asking some questions. So if we think about it, if we want it to be effective, there's, we want to make sure one, the reflection's accurate. And secondly, we want the players to be able to do that live and not wait for the coach to stop and ask questions or for the video after a match or after the game. So it was just delving into what can we give players as a real structured tool that isn't restrictive but allows them to go through a nice simple think process to give them confidence that they're collating the information they need to based on what's in front of them to allow them to to be confident they're making the right choice and be able to commit to it and then being able to effectively evaluate that quickly live in live play separating the choice 
from the execution and whether they committed or not. So that was the big delve, really. And um, when you start to break it down and ask a lot of coaches on the reflection, it seems to be more common that it's uh, when we stop play, we have a discussion or in video afterwards. But we don't seem to be common yet, commonplace, is to teach players an action review process that they can use, particularly at a young age. So by the time they get to 13, 14, 15, if they're still playing the sport, actually it's second nature. That actually they're doing this live consistently and then they can support each other live on a pitch as, a, as opposed to wait for play to stop. Does that make sense, Phil? Yeah, absolutely. So just let me, so I've got it right. What basically you and Julie would say is, if I have zero ability to reflect, me doing something would mean nothing because I can't learn from that process either as I'm doing it or afterwards. Well, you will be reflecting, but your reflection may be emotionally led or your reflection may be inaccurate because your interpretation is wrong. So if your interpretation of what happened, if your ability to reflect is poor, then actually your conclusion could be wrong. And if you're emotionally led, you've got that thing, you know, that confirmation bias and also past experiences. If you, Again, if we're training players, another example, to be results-focused, which naturally they tend to, I'm generalising here, as opposed to, no, 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 let's look at the choice and the execution, whether you're committed to the execution or not. That's what's important. And not look at, if we relate that to golf, I know we had chat Stuart ages ago, is many years now, is so many golf players wait for where the ball's landed and then kind of work out what happened in the swing as opposed to, no, be confident what you're doing and be able to reflect, not based on the outcome, but based on your understanding of choice and execution. So the whole challenge is, is we want players to, to be reflecting accurately, so it's not a poor interpretation, stay present and be able to separate the choice from the execution and not be outcome focused, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it makes complete sense. Uh, I guess my follow-up question then is, if reflection is so key, why do you think we don't train it? Or, or again, generalisation, why do you think it's not trained in the same way that a skill would be when you first start playing sport? Because, you know, we'll, all, we'll have all seen kids' sessions and they'll all be doing their little games or stood in lines and with cones and that will trigger Stu off in about 15 minutes. I know that. So, um, you know, to, why are we getting kids to dribble a ball or pass a ball or shoot a ball before they can understand what reflection is? I think in many ways it, it's similar to the challenges. I know Stuart and many others get frustrated with, with just lock, drill, lock, drill without players' decision-making. We know that's evolved in the game in some way because of whatever process over many years. And I feel you don't know what you don't know sometimes. So, so if you ask coaches, yeah, the, the ability for a player to effectively make decisions live and reflect on the live so they can absorb the right information, adapt, continue to do the great stuff and change the stuff that's not working. You'd all agree that was great, but I think there's a bit of limiting belief that's, that they think that's a natural trait with some players. You either got it or you haven't got it. You can't really train it with everyone. And that would slow my content of practice down, Mark, if I focused on that. I haven't got time to focus on that because I've only got them twice a week and I've got to get the content in. So what they're forgetting is if you nail the fundamentals, and I use an action review process, and it, go for a simple one, Phil, is getting everyone coach and players use the same is being aware of state first and managing because we know someone's awareness of state and their ability to regulate it 
that self is a great tool to developing kids, never mind into senior, but also getting their other players to help them with that. Once your state's good, it's scanning. So scanning is collating the data. So looking at opportunities, threats live, on or off the ball, doesn't matter. You're continually doing that. And then based on that, you can collate the options. And then once you're collating all the options, then you look at the variables or influences. Okay, I can't do that because Jimmy's not fast enough to take that kick over the top. Um, right, I'm looking at the opposition here. They're going to come in. So I'm left with one or two options. I go, right, I'm going for this one. I commit to it 100%. Now, doing that beforehand allows you to make better decisions with confidence. And then you've got the process afterwards. Did I commit? First question, no. Well, I don't review because I need, I need to earn the right to review based on my commitment to everything I do. And then you just review the choice and the execution separately. So if you think about it, set people up for success by giving them a framework to allow them to make better decisions and know where the fundamentals are. But importantly, Get coaches to use that, same for hockey, lacrosse, rugby, soccer, all these type team sports, for, for the coach to be scanning for that as well. So what I mean by that is often the coach will be looking for, right, that's not the choice I wanted them to make or the execution. And then the questions are based at that element, as opposed to the, the coach tracking and scanning and saying, well, how's the player's state? State is good, right? How's the scanning? Not sure. So my first question would be to that player, what did you see in here? So what I'm doing is I'm not allowing myself to get caught up in why did you make that choice? My first is I want to understand what they saw from where they were stood, which is different to me. And from that, then I can say, okay, what were the options you had? So now I'm taking them through the same process I want them to think. I'm using as my questioning framework to allow them to logically review as opposed to a player going, oh, that was crap, excuse the language, but we often get that because they're outcome biased. But also the coach is being too influenced by the outcome themselves. So they're discussing the choice without identifying where was the source of the problem. So if the source of the problem was scanning, a coach intervention should be at scanning. Don't get caught up anything beyond it because it was scanning meant they didn't see the option. That's why they didn't choose the option. So it's actually getting coaches to understand if there's a framework to scan for them and then there's a follow-up framework to, for the questions if they're not sure, but also if the players are using the same, it becomes common language. So we know if your state's negative, ineffective, your scanning will be negatively influenced. So if we know their state's down, our interventions to be, how can we help that player manage their state, be aware of it and manage it? That should be my focus as a coach because I know if that's, if they're present, their state's good. They're learning, their decision-making, their commitment to things will improve and they'll learn the technical and tactical quicker, better because we've now recognised the source of that player's issue is state. Then the state's good. Then we say, right, scanning. Scanning's now good. Scanning is ineffective. Okay, my work on now, my focus intervention will be on scanning. So it's allowing me, like a, think of it like a brain surgeon. I don't want to put the scalpel in before I understand where I need to put it in. So let's think of a nice, simple process. So then by the time we get to the reviewing part, they've had a thought process. Well, actually, I believe I made the right choice. Or now I understand, no, it was the wrong choice. Next time I'm going to do this. Or right choice, I committed to it, poor execution. Or right choice, I committed to it, great execution. It just didn't come off, but I wouldn't change anything. So it allows people to actually understand the game. Now, the other thing with that is, if now we're saying to a player, okay, scanning was the state was good, the scanning was good. Options, 
you saw the options. But now when we get to what we call the variables, the influencers, that, you know, the reason why you can't do those options you saw because of the players on the pitch, the players around you, your own ability. If now we see the problem is there, then that could be a game management issue. So now I'm saying, okay, they may have a lack of understanding of the game. They're seeing the options, but they're not understanding how to pick the right option for the players on the park. So they may have learned over video that actually this is a good option because there's an open space or I'd kick over the top. But what that coach hasn't got them to realise is, well, that's only good with these players in your team around you at the time. That player hasn't got the speed to go for that or haven't got the accuracy to receive that type of pass. So with the players around you, what's the, what's the choice that has the greatest opportunity of success? Well, because Billy's to my left now, I can't do that long, fast pass because Billy hasn't the ability to take that yet under pressure in competition. We can practice it, but in competition, I need to use a more effective choice. If Stevie was with me, I could do that long pass. So that's when we're talking about those variables. Now, that's when we can really nail down where is my energy intervention to help that player grow? Now I've got a logical process to get them to work it out. But also, I've got players that allow them to solution find and problem solve and reflect more accurately without emotions because there's a nice thought process. More success before, but a nice logical, instead of I don't know, we can say, okay, I don't know, coach. Okay, let's go through it. What did you see? So what were the options? What about the influences? Okay, so what are you left with? Great, show me. So it's that process of allowing a player to think in the way you want them to, which is the way we want them to think in the modern game, basically adapt to what you see in front of them, but make, make good informed choices with confidence. So I'm going to loop in Stu and Collie on this. Guys, from a strategic perspective around coach and player development, where does reflection sit for you guys? I'll jump in. Well, there's two strands to this, isn't there? I mean, there's, there's an application of reflection in coaching um as a sorry as a coach as a coach development tool and i often hear a lot of people talking about you know reflection and they 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 reflect and this that and the other and i agree with mark in a lot in a, in a big way in the sense that one of the big gaps i think from a coach development perspective is the fact that very few people are given the opportunity to reflect with somebody else who can either offer an alternative put another lens on things maybe give them different perspective or even potentially draw shine a light on potential blind spots that they may not have even noticed and so i think that's a really important tool because what i think that does is then turbocharge turbocharge that reflective process um as opposed to as mark suggested earlier on you know you can you can self-deceive you can be emotionally reflective and all those sorts of things you know i've several times you know come away from a session and thought that was absolutely garbage and somebody else has been there and said i thought that was brilliant what you did there and i was like really i didn't see that and as a coach developer myself i've done that several times as well i've seen coaches panic and go oh god i would have changed it but do things like that and i'm a bit like it's interesting to notice the books i thought it was going really well yeah it was difficult but it was going really well so it's it's kind of interesting just to reflect on that when it comes down to um, coaches and actively engaging participants in the reflective process. Um, <clears throat> for me, this is like the big, the big missing link. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen that in a curriculum for coaches. It might be in a curriculum for coaches, maybe at level four and maybe at level three, but particularly for those at the sort of early stages, for me, you know, coach education is largely about just follow the recipe is a session do the session and i actually think that's doing a huge disservice to to coaches the assumption of course is that you know novice coaches are complete novices they've never coached before in their lives whereas actually a reality people are bringing an array of experiences to coaching they might be teachers they might be people developers they might have fantastic experiences of working with young people whatever it might be 
they're all bringing a range of experiences but we all just assume that they absolutely know nothing and we've got to teach them everything and so what we do is we've got a short period of time so we teach them about techniques and applications and those sorts of things and this stuff just gets so gets missed I also think there are some fundamental myths in coach education as well that that actually completely take us away from this realm so what Mark espouses and what I really get attracted by is the idea that the participant is at the center of the learning process and really the coach is there as a facilitator now if you were to educate people in that process right from the outset well, how powerful could that be in terms of young people taking ownership of that experience and genuinely feeling as if they're at the center of it as opposed to saying what you've got to do is you've got to tell people to do something they've got to follow this playbook they've got to do this and do that and they're completely they're just basically sort of almost like treated as robots within a system where you know and, and the coach has to run the session and the session has to be structured and ordered and if it's not structured and ordered it's a pain and the reflective process is central to that because if all you ever did as a coach is literally confirm with an individual or pose a question with an individual around what it was they noticed so I, I interestingly mark uses the phrase about what do i what did you see what did you hear one of the things i do is i actually say what do you notice um, because actually there's a lot of ways of perceiving there's a there's a sensory way of perceiving you know there's a proprioceptive way of perceiving there is what you see there is what you feel and hear um, but I actually want to just tap into certainly you know what it is they notice and if they notice for example they felt fearful or if they notice that um, they felt tight or they felt um, uh, exposed or all these sorts of things these are important things to know and actually, for me, the process of coaching is all about solicitation of information. If there's one thing I look at as a coach developer, it's the flow of information for, uh, between coach and participant. And if the flow is predominantly one way, uh, i.e. coach to participant, then that's something I might want to draw attention to. Because realistically, it should be almost the other way around. The only information you're interested in as a coach is what they're experiencing or what they're seeing and feeling. And from that, you can then begin to define things. So for me, the process of supporting participant reflection should be almost the first skill is taught, literally the first, the first skill taught to a coach. Because fundamentally, that's almost everything you're ever going to need in the future. I'm being slightly glib when I say that. But like, where is it non-existent? Why is it non-existent? I have no idea. And actually, it's something we need to change. Do you think the irony is actually, you said, you know, coaches will come from all walks of life with varying skills. I've never met a human being that can't reflect in some form and that doesn't, as Mark said, people will always do that. Some will do it better than others and some will have learned to do it. But actually, we all do it in every walk of life every day. So maybe that just seems the odd piece for me that we leave it. But actually, it's the one, it's probably the biggest common denominator any new coach will have in that they do understand how to reflect even if they don't know what it looks like in a coaching environment yeah and, and also coming back to that participant stuff the participant often is not engaged to reflect because the the perception is that they should just be compliant compliant actors in, in a scenario designed by a coach so the coach saying this is the outcome we're looking for and ultimately what they're looking for is compliance for the outcome and if the, if there is if there's a lack of compliance for the outcome then correction takes place they're never, they're never engaged in that process. It's, it's a massive flaw. So my view is, is that, um, you know, there is an assumption as well that young people don't know, don't know how to reflect. Well, Mark will show you. They definitely do. All you, all you need to do is to help them to do it in a way that's efficient, 
because a lot of people don't i think a lot some of the reasons people don't do it is because like if you ask a group of kids a question then you get a load of answers and, they, and quite a lot of them want to give you like loads of information and then you're there for about five minutes which is a long re which is one of the reasons you get the big five minute huddles but actually mark shows a very quick and efficient way of not not just doing it sort of post action but in action you know so i think reflecting in action is as important as reflecting on action and actually, that's an important thing because everything we do is retrospective. But actually, if you can get somebody engaged literally almost in the moment, reflecting with you, uh, almost unsolicited, then, wow, you know that they're actually engaged in the learning process as opposed to just passive participants, which is where I think a lot of children end up being. Collie, where would it sit for you within your role within the IRA? Yeah, it, it's, it's a really fascinating um, area. And I, and I love listening to, to Mark's perspective and, and Stuart also on this. So, and, and actually, Phil, you touched on something, um, I think, quite powerful there when you spoke about ordinary people in their ordinary lives reflect on things quite a lot. And I think that's because they see meaning for themselves in that reflection. And also they feel that they've got time and reflection, effective reflection is a kind of a cumulative thing. It's not like a, necessarily an epiphany of one moment. It's a, it's, a, it's a thing where people start to think about themselves and the direction in their lives and so on. And a lot of time, we don't afford coaches that time to do that. There's a kind of a period, I've got to get this fixed. And coaches, you know, traditionally are seen, and I think they're seen by, by the general public, if not themselves, as fixers. So they see a problem and I've got the fix. And there's always that kind of power imbalance between the player and the coach. So maybe the coach has been a player, him or herself, or they're certainly uh, more often older than the players that they're coaching. And they're seen to have a knowledge that the players don't have. So therefore, they're, they're almost primed to go be um, a diagnostician and to go, ah, I see what the issue is here, and, and to get in the fix. And Mark referred to that thing about the outcome. Um, and, and, and I think that's a really actually interesting area to look at because coaches, I, I think everybody can see what went wrong. So you can see when the ball didn't go where it was supposed to or when the, when the, when the pass was dropped or whatever. And... The spectator can see that, or the, 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 the mum or dad on the sideline can see that, but the coach is expected to have the fix and to be able to give the feedback. And I think when we're talking about reflection, we're talking about generating feedback. And when Stuart refers to what's on the curriculum and coaching courses and, and so on, you're right, you may absolutely find something about giving feedback, but I would really draw a line through that forever and just talk about generating feedback. Because that generation of it then brings the player into the center, as you said. It's not about me seeing what I saw. It's about identifying what you saw. And, you know, I love the word that the, the term you use, noticing, which is a really good one. Because it talks about all the senses. Um, and it ties in, I think, with the type of training environment that coaches should be providing at all levels. And that environment must involve some form of choice. Because if that's what the game demands, then we must put players in a situation where they've got the choice to make. And if that's the case, um, like what Mark was talking about, um, identifying a choice and they're kind of the perception and finding out, well, what did you notice first? And then what your choice was from that. That for me is the is the step-by-step -step approach. It's, it's, it's delving into what the player perceived, what options they felt that they had. And then after that, the execution my opinion is something that's relatively easy to fix the, the challenge for the coaches to try to see things the way that the player saw it 
or even, I mean, in a game like, like rugby, to try to see it in the way that group of players saw it. So what did you as a, as a unit or you as, a, as an operating group see? The other thing as well that, that struck me um, is that uh, if we don't provide those kind of choices, you end up with a kind of a, a microwave version of coaching, which is there's a problem, you know, raise your hands, keep your hands higher next time. And it's kind of, it's zoomed through maybe what the nature of the issue was, which was that the player didn't see a choice in the first place. So I just think that in, in, in going back to what you said, Phil, about ordinary people in their ordinary lines, I think the differential here is, is the time that we allow it and the value that we put in it. So why do people reflect on their own lines? Because it's meaningful to them. Why don't coaches spend enough time doing reflection and, and generating that feedback with their players? I think because it's a skill, it's a lack of a skill, which can involve questioning and facilitation. Um, and also maybe the feel that this is, there's a pressure element to this coaching that we, you know, we've got a fixed session and we've got a match on the weekend. So there's a kind of a, a time pressure element as well. And as a key thing into that, Colin, it linked into what you're saying there is we want to develop it. So we have players that can do that without the need for the coach. So we want it to happen in flow. We don't want to keep stopping play or pulling players out. Our aim is that is there as a tool, but our tool should be we see a player's arm going up to another player because they're the people on the pitch are interacting with. Go, yeah, got that. Next time I'm going wider, thumb up right, I'm seeing it. And then, then the coach is just scanning for next opportunity. I've seen them highlight that. Do they change it next time? And then we're seeing do the players work together to help each other problem solve live? Do we see that communication when they run back, the hand up, the touch, the recognition? And then our go-to is if we're not sure, we can just shout someone's name. And because they've learned an action review process, common language, they can just shout and tell us the answer, the one conclusion. Then we go, yeah, I'm happy with that. I haven't even stopped play. Now, then in practice, I want to say, right, I'm not sure or that player's not sure. Then I can just pull that player out, rotate one in or just have an hand down and go, OK, talk to me. And they know what you want is a review process. So they go, right, OK, this is what I saw. These are the options. This is why I went for this one. Um, definitely committed. So it wouldn't change anything or not sure, coach. So then you can either go, right, back in, give it another go, or you can get the other players to help. Or you can go, have you thought about this? Well, I haven't. So if you knew that, what would you do? Oh, great. Show me. So it's all that thing. And that's why I think Stuart, what Stuart was saying is some people can get turned off by this, some coaches, because they think we never tell the players any information. And that's, that's not what we're saying. There will be times when we recognize, right, the players don't know this information. I can share this with them, but it's sharing them with understanding. And then say, now you know that, off you go, use it. So, so now you're back on, based on what you see, make a choice and commit 100%. That's kind of the fundamentals we want. And then from that, we can go, okay, so what would you change, if anything? But it's back to coaches not asking questions only when someone's done something wrong, which is the problem. Then players have learned answers. Oh, coach is asking me something. What's the answer they want to hear? It's this. That's not effective self-reviewing. That's not real at all. So it's understanding the aim should always be to make yourself redundant. And these are facilitators to help players be successful before the reflection, but understand, giving them closure that isn't emotional or outcome-based to allow them to learn on the hop, in the moment, evolve, read the game, adapt, be present again, not allow that, oh, I missed the pass, to still be thinking about it when actually their mind should be present, scanning for the moment again. So it's as well a self-management tool as it is a learning tool 
and not relying on rubbernecking to the coach. I just did that. Look for coach. Is that okay, coach? And then coach is shouting confirmation, which is exactly what we don't want. So it's cut. It's back to interpretation of reflection, interpretation of the role of a coach. And I think, Colin, that's what you were getting to is if coaches don't understand and agree what their role is, what success for a coach is, we're going to get conflict. So if your success of the coach is to make yourself redundant, to allow players to have confidence, make decisions live, work together to problem solve, be relentless, be patient, live on the pitch without the need for the coach, then actually they'll think I'm a fixer. You know, I need to share this knowledge. Please stand around and listen to me. Oh, there's a problem. Let me fix that for you. This session went well. So, and for me, one of the first things as always is let's agree what a coach, the word coach means and what success looks like. And then let's film ourselves. Let's benchmark to see, are we doing what we think we're doing? And then let's start the discussion from there. And as, as Stuart was saying, it's back to that old statement is the greatest athlete development is coach development. If we can get coaches to be more self-aware in the moment of what they're doing, how they're saying, their own ability to manage their state, their own ability to scan and decide which intervention is a right for me now. No, I'm letting play go now. I'm just a quick shout with that player, just a one-to-one. -one. I don't need to stop play now. Then it becomes effective. And it's back to the light and shade of coaching and not being scared. Oh, you mean I can't say anything to the players? No, there are times when you can, but you've got to know based on, the judgment time have you given them time to solve it themselves but also have you given them a tool to allow them to make better decisions and have you given permission to go that's what i want you to do if it's not working i'm fine but if it's not working change something and go for it because that's how we're going to learn and don't expect it to be right every time i also think that the, the uh, coaches and we need to be better at making coaches feel comfortable when things are not going well yeah. So when, when, when the, the things are starting to fall apart, that the coach doesn't panic and say, well, this is a bad reflection on me or, or you know, we're ill-prepared for the game, that they see, you know, understanding the nature of the game and the chaos that can be, can be part of it with so many different choices and so many different options, that in fact part of their job is to kind of recreate that chaos and to make things fail and to break the decisions and to... Um, you know, to, to, to make players um, uncomfortable with, with the options that are there because then they, by posing that challenge and those riddles, which is a word I've started using, you say, I've got a riddle for you, which I think is a nice way of approaching it from a, from a coaching point of view uh, or a puzzle, that those players, that's when the coach then knows that I have to help you solve that puzzle. I've, I've created the puzzle for you and then we're comfortable in you not being able to solve it because that's what we're trying to work on together. I have to say, I'd, yeah, I love the bit around being less of a fixer, being less of a mechanic, because that's certainly as a, as a coach in my younger years, that, that was definitely me, just trying to go in and be that kind of fountain of knowledge and, and trying to do everything for everyone and, and coming, you know, moving away from that, I think is a positive. So, great stuff. As, just before you move on, Phil, I just one thing that's, that I wanted to say about that, and, and I, I come to, to rugby with very minimal um, playing background. And it was something that I struggled with at the start. Um, I come from an education background. I was very lucky that the IRFU were looking for education people as opposed to ex-internationals at the time when, when I was getting a job as a development officer. Um, but I find that a lot of ex-players who become coaches then struggle in that area about understanding what the player sees. They've been very talented themselves in the way that they've done certain things and you know they've achieved great things as, as players. And I think, and it's a whole other area, but it just strikes me that when we're talking about trying to 
understand how players perceive and the choices that they make, it can be difficult for someone that has, um, you know, a particular way of doing things over a period of time or sees things from that particular player perspective when they then go into actually working with players that obviously they can't see through their eyes. And that, that facilitation aspect is something I think that's, uh, that's, they can find difficult despite all the stuff that they've achieved as players. 100% agree. And as you say, that's, that's probably a whole episode in itself, just discussing how, I know that's a conversation Stu and I have had over uh, many, many teas and coffees, talking about how players make that transition to coaches. So um, we will shift it on. Stu, we're coming to you. What, uh, what content are you going to be looking at? Uh, so <clears throat> I stumbled across, so I, I, you know, I'm a, as I forgot to mention earlier on, I'm a, I'm a podcaster um, and I've been doing podcasts for quite a long time and I've been a real fan of podcasts for a long time, largely because um, I, I, something about that kind of audible medium that I, uh, the audio medium that I really, really like. And also I'm one of those people like quite a lot of us who've spent considerable hours in cars traveling around either for work or coaching. And it was a really good way of utilizing that time uh, to be able to actually actively engage in some learning. Um, and I, I'd wanted to do a podcast for quite a long time and I, I've stumbled I mean, the world of podcasting has just exploded and several, you know, several um, uh, different types. And when I've, first started there weren't that many coaching podcasts but there's now a absolute proliferation which is amazing and fantastic for coaches looking to learn um and i stumbled across one in an area that i hadn't expected so um one of my absolute favorite authors is a guy called michael lewis um and uh, michael lewis is famous for writing moneyball um but he's also written a whole raft of different books in a range of different uh, arenas including things like the financial crash called the big short some of you might have seen the movie the big short michael lewis wrote the original book which i highly recommend reading by the way um it, if you've seen the movie read the book as well because they really work together um, and likewise with moneyball by the way if you've enjoyed the movie definitely read the book because the book goes into a lot more detail it's really good um and he's one of my favorite authors and he started doing a podcast and uh he's doing it under with Malcolm Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell has started a kind of uh, podcast creation uh, company called Pushkin and, um, and does his own thing like revisionist history and all those sorts of things. And again, Gladwell, I'm, I'm, I really like Gladwell as a storyteller. Um, uh, we will forget some of his uh, 10,000 hour stuff, but he's a storyteller. He's a great storyteller. So Michael Lewis uh, started his podcast and it's called against the rules. Um, and when you see the cover art, you'll think, wow really but it's uh it's kind of quite fundamental and i got i got onto it from a podcast that was created during lockdown and it was only created because of lockdown uh which is a podcast called the flying coach um uh which features uh two very famous american uh coaches in the worlds of basketball and uh american football um uh, Steve Kerr from the uh, uh, blah, Golden State Warriors and um, I'm forgetting the name. He was the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. I actually really like him as well. He's a great coach. Can you remember? Anyway, the two of them come together and they, they actually taught, they actually interviewed Michael Lewis about his podcast coming up and it's all about coaching. The first series is all about coaching, but coaching in lots of different realms business and psychology and all that sort of stuff the whole series is absolutely fascinating and it talks about the power of the coach the impact of the coach different things and in not in lots of ways it's re on some ways it's fantastic because it it's got loads of elements within it that are very powerful around 
the impact of a coach, the way the way a coach can interact, all that. But there's also some things in it which which I found myself uh, like desperately trying to get in touch with Michael Lewis to say that's not coaching, right? That's something else. That's like ritual abuse, right? That's not what you ought to be espousing as being good coaching. But what's interesting is it's made me do a reappraisal because it's made me actually look back and think maybe some of the values and perceptions that I hold dear, I have to reappraise or I, I should be at least open to. Maybe I've become a little dogmatic in my perception of what good coaching looks like. Maybe I ought to understand that in certain contexts within certain dimensions, actually what is good coaching is actually not something that you would necessarily look at being good coaching because the participant in this context is suggesting that they really value that approach. I personally think that they need to be uh, exposed to alternatives to determine where there is good coaching. But in this one particular episode that I'm going to refer to, and it's all it refers to um, Tim Galway and uh, the Inner Game. I don't know if any, anybody's heard of the Inner Game of Tennis. He wrote a famous book called The Inner Game of Tennis. He subsequently wrote one called The Inner Game of Golf. Um, and in that in that whole concept about the inner game it was very much about the idea of how can you help an individual to achieve sports performance without providing them with technical information without giving them feedback as collie talked about a minute ago you know how do you actually help them to become aware and the inner game is a fascinating thing i've seen mark use the inner game with somebody way back mark you'll remember the karate coach who was on our course who was learning to play golf and had never seen a golf course before genuinely didn't know what the green was and Mark, he literally, when he grabbed hold of a nine iron, he was holding it like, you know, with his hands apart. He took this massive divot out of the practice ground. And within no more than five minutes, literally with no technical information whatsoever, purely through questioning, he was hitting a nine iron pretty cleanly, about 60, 70 yards, pretty consistently. And I, I'll be honest with you, there was myself and my, uh, my boss at the time, we were both involved in the world of golf with our mouths open. Like, how's this feasible? How's it possible? And actually, many of the approaches, and I've learned subsequently, are linked to the inner game. So anyway, um, I, I kind of just wanted to share with you this whole, this, this idea. The main reason for me talking to you, the main thesis I want to talk about was, A, this idea of, firstly, this like non-intervention, non-technical intervention-led coaching model, uh, and actually utilizing what's within the, what's within the performer, and actually actually soliciting from them the information as a means by which for them to actually solve the problem. And he actually talks about an example he used uh, with an individual tuba player as part of a massive orchestra. No information, no knowledge of tuba whatsoever, but through a very simple process of, of asking a few questions, got this individual performing amazingly to the point where everybody else was standing up and clapping. And this is Galway talking about the approach he takes. So there's this non-intervention-led model contrasted against Michael Lewis's daughter, who's a softball player, working with her coach, who's basically just abusive, continuously abusive, actually getting in the way of this young lady's performance, who then goes and speaks to somebody else who uses inner game principles. She then goes away with one idea in her mind, which is to be aggressive and, and loose and then performs brilliantly. And yet she still thinks her coach is great. Desperately, I'd, I'd recommend listening to it because it, I've got questions in my mind about why do people perceive this to be good, but also is there something in that? I don't know. Anyway, I'll open the door because I could ramble forever. I think there's a few things in there, Stuart, is I mean, if, we were, if I can relate it back to some military adventurous training stuff, um, and a guy we both know who's ex-Raw Marines, um, he's 
somebody gets stimulated on Twitter often, mm-hmm. you know, he, he reflects back often to the military process. And a great thing, if you're, if you're teaching someone abseiling or free climbing or jumping rocks uh, 50 feet up and they're seeing rocks behind you, in those situations, you tell them what they can and can't do. And this is a procedure. This is you, how you tie this knot. We wouldn't get them to go, okay, how do you think you tie your knot? Now, you could get to it with safety, go, let me check. Keep going. Have you thought about this? Let me check again. But that may take an hour or so, and there's only two or three knots that you can do. So that kind of makes sense. And then it's the challenge, Stuart, going back to your example there. Obviously, I did a bit of stuff in softball and baseball the last few years in the States with Cleveland Indians and the, the community. It's That's a kind of sport where the hitter at a low level – doesn't have to make decisions at a low level to get away with success because the person throwing the ball is only going to do one or two ways. But the challenge then is when they start moving up, the guy throwing the ball can swerve that ball, can move that ball, can adjust the ball. So now the person just going, just do this now, now struggles because only that they know, well, if I do this, I get success. So what you kind of doing, I believe you're setting up false success we're actually, instead of developing the fundamentals where they can think they can read what's coming in to evaluate, they go, I just do this, I get success because coaches told me just to do this. And then as they move up, that doesn't work anymore. And then they've got nowhere to go. So I think that's, that is sometimes that challenge of balance when you have that stand here, do this, just focus on this, hit that, adjust that knee, right, drive, great, keep doing that. And all of a sudden you go, it's work, I've got a great coach. But it only works in, because you're getting limited input the ball is coming the same direction, same speed every time. That starts changing, and all of a sudden that model doesn't work. So I think then it's, it's the limitation of are you training in the moment? A bit like we talked about earlier, Phil, with Colin, is a rugby game, for example, we're not trained them to be effective in that one 40-minute-an-hour game. It's linked to many, many practice sessions. So our success isn't in that session. Our success is over months and months, and it's the same there is – our success shouldn't be just going to hit that ball in that way it's actually we need to prepare them for future and build the foundation so I think that's where some people get short success in that approach Stuart but it's short success in my view we're not developing the whole player human human development takes time doesn't it you know if you see an improvement in somebody in in the window of 40 or 40 minutes or an hour or an hour and a half it's fool's gold right? It's not going to stand up. You can only do it over a period of time. But this is one of the problems I have with technique-led coaching anyway, because technique-led coaching assumes that you've got the solution for every time. But the reality is you've got the solution for this moment, not the moment that might happen tomorrow or the day after when, thing, when all the variables kick in. So the reality is the only thing we can really do is to help people to develop the capabilities and tools that are going to help them to solve the problems and then sometimes help them with some of the process pro- process of, of, of cutting out the options, as opposed to the idea of saying, here's your solution, practice that loads and you'll be golden. It's like, it's like this myth, right? This technically led myth. But the other bit about that particular issue as well, Martin, it was worse than that, right? Because not only was this coach, so sorry, this so-called coach, not, uh, not helping the, the, the individual to sort of tap into the information sources that are important for their improvement, she was actively getting in the way by giving this particular female athlete loads of don'ts. So all she heard was don't this, don't that, don't this, don't that. And that's all she had in her mind. She was super negative about her performance. Her confidence was through the floor because she was totally constantly saying, I got to, I got to don't, don't drop your hands. Don't keep your hands too high, whatever it might be. She couldn't perform. The minute she got beyond that to loose and aggressive, 
all of her playing teammates were struggling against this pitcher who was like seen as one this division one pitcher she smashed this line drive and she got runs and she's done really well as a result of that purely purely because somebody else taught her to get out of the way of all the other crap that she was being given Mm. and for me that's such an an important illustrative lesson for me about what coaching isn't and what coaching is but it's also sad that so many people see the stuff that they're being given by their coach that, they, that is not effective and not helpful as being valuable. And that's something I really would love to address. Yeah. It's, it's always going to be developing the understanding of self-awareness, isn't it? A, a golfer, a batter in softball, baseball, cricket, that a golfer, you've still got variables to deal with, right? You've got the weather conditions, right? We still have to make a judgment choice. But once, once you strike a ball, it's that player that needs to be aware of, okay, what do I need to adjust in that shot? The coach isn't going to be there for them. So it's never going to be about just do this movement and don't do this because the body can't replicate at that split second anyway, even if it's a closed type movement. So it's false development anyway, unless we get the player self-aware to self-evaluate and adapt and know how to read the situation with comp. Based on the first part of Stuart's story, my, my, First question is kind of prompted to be how much does Mark charge for a golf lesson because I could probably uh, use some help in that regard. But um, I think that whole area about, about non-interventionist approach is is something that I'd be very interested to hear how you think that as organizations we can best develop that amongst coaches. So how can we educate the educators um, aspect of this? Because it's, it's almost that we're telling them to hold back knowledge that, they, that they've accumulated or that, or that they know. And it's, you know, there, there's, I think, pressure on coaches to be seen to be doing something. And that the non-interventionist thing is more observant and is more kind of contemplative and watching. And that can be a very difficult thing, I think, for, for coaches to get used to, especially if they're, they're formative education in that aspect has been to fill them with knowledge. This is how you scrum. This is the key factors of a tackle. This, And we look at the content of stuff that we provide for, for coaches. And you know, there's reams of information. There's, there's no lack of content. In today's modern world, a coach can find out pretty much anything they want from a technical point of view. It's all out there. It's on the internet. It's everywhere. And I think that we probably should fundamentally as educators we should shift the idea about the the art of coaching rather than the stuff of coaching and, and that, that that aspect that you're talking about knowing when to intervene and when not um i think is something that i'd be interested to hear how you guys might think that we could do that better for um for being the educators of those coaches it's an interesting one. You're going to get me on my, sorry, Phil, you're going to get me on my soapbox now, but uh, there are, I actually think a lot of coach education curricula are actually based fundamentally on, on the wrong, uh, uh, you know, kind of almost like theoretical pos- position on education. So very, very most education systems are, are, are kind of based on the, uh, the idea of a kind of knowledge transfer transfer model. And they're based on the idea that, uh, people learn, even coaches, through you know mass information transfer, um, just just in case they're going to need it. Now we know that basically 90% of that disappears straight out the brain. 10% might be retained. And in order to modernise a learning approach, we have to be much more contextual, contextual and experiential. So in reality, people are going to learn in bite-sized chunks on demand when they need it because they've got a problem to solve. 
uh, and it's going to need experience for it to actually become part of the fabric of their behavioral framework but that's not how education works education works in a information transfer model and so we need to ruin the way education the way the coaches are educated because how can a coach be expected to work in a kind of non-instructional way if actually their educational experience has all been instructional so but it, but interestingly it's this external perception as well people go on a course they expect to be told something people go on a coaching session they expect to be told something so there's this external perception of non-coaching or non-learning taking place so there's a big cultural shift required and a big educational shift around in the sports domain in particular right in a physical activity domain you require to be physically active in some way to learn or you you require to be engaged to learn and that might take time so there's a real difficulty there in getting people to understand that domain and it's not lost on me that that's difficult but it would help us if we looked at alternative models for educational development and curricular development that's more exploratory and experiential than this information transfer model which is the dominant paradigm I, I hadn't i hadn't been working with the irfu for very long as a development officer down in in uh, in munster based in, in pullman park when i attended a kicking clinic uh, that we had invited dave aldred over to deliver and it was one of um it was a, a real eye-opener for me i have to say because he was getting us to, to kick uh, rugby balls and soccer balls and all different kinds of balls um, into goals or over, um, over posts and stuff like that. And he got me to kick the ball and he turned around and I'm thinking, here's this kind of, you know, kicking guru who's going to have some like unbelievable diamonds of information about how I should kick it. And he just said to me, how did it feel? And I said, um, you know how to answer that question how did it feel it felt like okay and he said when i kicked it when i kicked one well he said to me okay i just want you just to reproduce that feeling and i was going it's got to be more to it than that right he's going to tell me that my foot should be at 16 degrees and my ankle should be at such and such a force but no it was it was more about that sensation and it was allowing me as a learner to explore how to do it now i didn't do it particularly well but i had the focus for me that the process was what was interesting because it allowed me to think about me doing it as opposed to a coach telling me how to do it and, and that kind of really stuck with me and and um i i've i've thought about that approach quite a lot and and it kind of reminds me i i, I kind of go off kilter on, on a few things here like we all tend to do i think you know, we're all probably inquisitive about different, whether it be podcasts or, or, or topics and information. But coaching, <clears throat> good coaching, I think, reminds me of that maybe not true quote about Michelangelo where asked about how he created the statues. And he said, I don't create a statue out of marble. I just cut away everything that isn't the statue. And yeah, I love that. I really like that. And then when you think about it in terms of coaching, it's not that you're making something. You're actually revealing something that's already there. And if you, if, I think if you keep that approach as a coach at any level, it allows you to get a perspective that there's something in there already and it doesn't require me to make it. It just requires me to reveal it. I think the key thing, Colin, is we need to understand that the coach is going to have barriers with any way that is far away from what they're comfortable with. Um, and one of the things we always have to have, as we do with players, we want to get people to see the value in change. So 
we need to make sure when we're selling something that they're going to change. We do it where it's not too much. It's a little bit, same as we want to the players. Keep it simple. They see the value in it. Okay, so what would this next step look like? And one of the things I always find really useful, even with coaches that don't want to change, I say, well, let's check success. So I use covert recalls that all my clients use. Um, they're still using it decades gone. They still use it. So what we say is we don't know how one session, how successful a session is. We want to say three quarters way through, you need to step back and see if they can do it without you because that's the test of how good you've communicated based on scenario, not just based on show me this. But the test marker is next session after the warm-up, just throw a scenario in and step back. And you're checking for their recall on the judgments they make and their commitment to them, the choices they make based on that recall will determine how good that previous session was. So this is great because if we get a coach goes, no, Mark, I need to fix that. I need to tell them they won't be able to work it out themselves. We go, okay, great. So the covert recall. So then what will happen is, and 99% nine, I've never met, seen, it may happen. I've never seen it where it's been good recall when a coach had just been telling, reminding. So then you get a poor recall. Then you ask the coach, okay, what could it be? Now there's only a few things. The players are disengaged. There was too much content. I was answering the questions for them, didn't allow them to think. So they're the generally the common ones. Or they didn't see the value, which meant they weren't engaged anywhere at the beginning. So then when we say, okay, so we need to dissect that now. So let's get to the source and let's adjust this session. And then we'll see on the next session how successful the covert recall is. So you can't move on on the content because they're not ready. And naturally, you see coaches start to change because they go, well, hang on. Now I need to get them to think for themselves more because they're not remembering this. So what about the content? Well, let me strip it down a bit. Let's see. So now the coach is owning it. They're being inquisitive because they've got a marker of evidence. But what do you think happens to the players when they know they're having a covert recall in the next session at some point, but they don't know what it is. It could be something from two sessions ago. They start challenging coach. Hang on, coach. What do you mean by this? Or hang on, give us another go. Coach, give us, give us another 10 minutes on this, please. And all of a sudden, the whole dynamics change just based on that covert recall of evidence of success in a following session and getting them to agree. You won't know how successful the session was at the time. You will only know after. It's a game changer, but it's simple. And it helps coaches to start analysing why something wasn't successful, if that makes sense. Stu, just to jump back to one of your points, from I think that perception around what coaching is is really interesting, and then everyone's touched on it there. But I saw, a, you know, just happened all the time during lockdown on social media that people are going, "Oh, you know, we're, we're getting, we're getting or accumulating all this knowledge," but then the challenge would be, "Are we learning because we're not coaching?" And then I'm watching some awesome sessions. So Coach Logic did some really good video stuff of what um, coaches were doing through footage and through reviews and all this type of stuff, and I'm going that's still coaching. Like why, why are people thinking that that isn't coaching just because we're not on the grass? So actually shifting that, that understanding or that perspective to say there's a huge amount more to coaching that we can do away from the grass. As you said, it's, it's that going back to that, bit of, you know, that bite-sized information. Actually, can we have a resource bank where players are just dipping in and out and going on their own, you know, down some little rabbit holes and learning some things and coming back to you and interacting? Like, is that not a better way Certainly, I would suggest with younger players who are, I'm not a massive fan of the Generation Z type tag, but do you know what I mean? They, they then have this approach to life, apparently, that's everything's online and it's all, which for some of them, it may be others, it isn't. But do you know what I mean? If we're dealing with those types of individuals, 
that hour and a half on the grass is actually then pretty limited in terms of the scope we have across the whole space of the week to interact with them and, and work with them. But I'm, I'm genuinely convinced that quite a lot of coaches, whether it's by virtue of their training or by virtue of their previous experiences or by virtue of whatever, whatever else, quite, quite convinced that a lot of coaches don't, aren't looking for learning. They're not looking for decision makers. They're looking for compliance. They're looking for people who will do what uh, they will follow the plan rigorously. And, and their assumption is, and I, I was one of these, happily hold my hand up. Their assumption is that if there is a breakdown somewhere in the um in the performance it's because it's a system breakdown and and there's a lack of structure so what we need is more structure you double down on the structure and and that why well you know if the only tool you've got is a hammer every problem looks like a nail doesn't it so partly it's that right but also it it, it stems from the perspective as well that you know um the individual is kind of not if you if you allow people to make decisions then you're you're it's a loss of the locus of control moves from you and so many people are based on that and and that's a lot of that's to do with fear because in the performance realm you know allowing not not even allowing encouraging people to make decisions well it could go wrong and my job's on the line and i work bloody hard to get here so you can understand why people start to fall into that trap but in the realm of community sport where you've got a group of nine-year-olds why would you want to be like that because ultimately you know you're you're there to help them flourish but i genuinely believe that some of the because actually most coach education curriculum are run by the ex-internationals as colin quite right or designed by the ex-internationals for the needs of the elite and that's what works there it trickles down but then you can argue Stuart, actually that's exactly what we don't want with the elite i I agree entirely by the way i'm just saying that's what happened Perception. And I'll give you two great examples. Um, well, it's the same example, but one in USA, one in UK in basketball. I had coaches that actually the players came up with a, a tactic that worked against the opposition in practice on five on five, so full court. And the, both these coaches, one in UK, one in the States, was unhappy that they didn't do the tactic he taught them. So then I had to go back and we had to have the discussion. We filmed it, we did a hot review, we do straight after a session, then we do the cold review, we sit down and review when the state is a bit calmer. And we had to get to the point of asking him, okay, so what is success? And the coach, both coaches eventually, it took a good five minutes to go, well, for them to make effective decisions against the opposition. Okay, so does it matter what that decision is if it's effective? No. Okay, so let's look back at this video. They came up with something themselves that they recalled they applied that was effective. It wasn't what you taught them. So was it effective? Yes. Actually, could you argue it's showing more learning and scanning and decision making by actually come up with something to solve a problem themselves without recalling a framework? Yes. Okay. And it took that and it worth having that 10 minute conversation with the video after the hot review to get them to change the way they think about them applying the learning. So it was a case of, hang on, back to what's success for the coach, is getting players to self-think, self-manage, great, great choices live under pressure against an opposition. Well, that's what you're seeing there, and not think, well, hang on a minute, I want them to do this, and they're doing something else. So these are these mental blockers, I call them, that we need to be in the, in the first coaching course. 
and share with everyone this is what coaching is so when you come into rugby on our basic course this is the type of person we want and if you don't want to be this type of person if you want, want to be the person that wants to pretend you're 1960 world cup football winner and stand on the side and dictate like a chess set actually you're not right for us so it's a principle of change the coach change the coach but if we can do it before they even come in then we're going to start getting the right person who goes, this is what I want. And I think sometimes we're not getting the right person to start the coaching journey because they don't, no one's explored and go, this is the type of coach you want. We want coaches to engage players, get them to think for themselves, help them become great decision makers, not you design a tactic that you want them to play against the other coach in a game to see who's the best coach. So I think we just need a better job at sharing that globally of what a great coach is. And at the first coaching course, say, this is a great coach. This is success for us. And build everything from that. Everything else comes second to that. I think there are very profound implications for an organization and, and for any sporting governing body about where they draw the line between what is developmental and what is performance. Because when we talk, we know the reality of professional sport. It is, it is down, it comes down to the outcome at the end. And we're not saying that it's not developmental and they shouldn't be mutually exclusive. But you're certainly not necessarily going to be judged well if you've played well but haven't won at, at the pro level, at the elite game. And we all accept that, you know, down at the, at the children's level that the development is most important, engendering a love for the game and respect for the values and all that, absolutely. But somewhere, a line is drawn by an organization to say, at this point, you or we are going from being a sport for everybody, where we're all playing on the same team, to now selecting whether it be a representative side or a county side or an academy side, and we start picking those best people. And suddenly, the prerogative of the coach has changed because we've drawn that line to say, now it is not so much about development. Now we're getting serious. Now we have to win. Now we have to do this. And I just think, and, and, and Stuart referred to this idea about the trickle down, when you, when you design a program, it's usually designed from the performance end of things because there's a lot of technical knowledge there. There can be a lot of technical you know, demands of the game. But how far down do those tentacles go has always concerned me. I've, I've, I've always worried about when people say to me, you know, I've got a really bad uh, under 14 team, they can't pass. And I'm like, can't pass in comparison to who? Like they can't pass in comparison to other 14s. What do you mean by can't pass? And they say, you know, they're dropping a lot of balls. And I think a lot of the time it's because they're looking at some curriculum or a thing that says these are the things that they should be able to do. They can't do that. Therefore, that's some kind of failure. And I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sure there is no specific answer to that. But I think at the very least, we should all, um, anyone who has responsibility for designing that program should say, and should reflect very deeply about what, at what point should we say that this is not so much more about development that actually the, the winning outcome is what's, what's most important? It's a great question. Well, can I just add something there? Because I think it's quite important. I'm not going to disagree with you, Colin, but I'll challenge you in some way. So only in my experience of working at pro level in many sports all the way down the grassroots, the fundamentals of the most successful elite teams have been Players can manage their state well. They understand each other how to influence and press their buttons. They scan well. They read the game. They make great decisions under pressure, and they commit to them without fear, and they don't allow the referee or the scoreline to influence them. They're the markers. 
So actually, even if you listen to the top, everyone's saying 10 and 15% is tech tack, and you may argue it's a bit more than that. But I believe if we actually put that at grassroots and say, right, these are our fundamentals, take away the fear, make decisions, commit to them. Actually, I think the ripple from that will, they will learn quicker. Their competency will improve anyway, but we'll have players and coaches instead of going, oh, we lost, we played poorly at elite level. We're now saying, hang on, how's our state? How's our scanning? How's our choices? How's our execution? How do we read the game? Which are the fundamentals, the performance controllers that will facilitate a result. Or we played to our best, it was just a better team. So I actually believe there can be more of a flow but you're right where I agree is there's going to be a time where we, whether we like it or not, there'll be an acceptance go, you will now be judged on a scoreline from the boss, the owner and the spectators. But actually, if we can develop the players and the coaches know what's going to facilitate us playing to our best, making best decisions, we don't have to share that with the spectators, but we know there are drivers, our fundamentals. I think that can flow from day one all the way through to elite level. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, I, I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying that at, at the performance level necessarily that development is is not the focus of yeah. the coach. What I'm saying is that their prerogative and how they're judged either by owners or by fans. You can have a very short-lived period as a coach at that at that level because the results don't go one way or the other. You know, like a, a poor decision and you lose the game by three points because of a penalty. Does that make you a bad coach? We would obviously say no, or at least we don't know until we've actually seen you coaching. And the problem is that be it the public or the media or the decision makers will go, well, last year they won 10 games and this year they won seven. So you know what's happened to the coach? <laughs> and we know it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah, yeah. People, don't, yeah. people don't bring that scrutiny to players at the developmental stages. Stu, I'm conscious of time, but I've got one quick question for you. So just going back to where you said the, uh, the player was dealing with the, the coach, inverted commas, uh, the softball coach that was maybe abusive or bullying or whatever. Do you think your assessment of that, do you think that is more of a moral question than it is a pedagogical one? Well, it's, it, yeah, well, so it's, it's a podcast, so I haven't obviously seen no, no, no. The individual in action. I don't know what their relationships are like. I'm basing it on purely on very, very limited information. But the clips that I heard, which again could have been very, uh, could have been very selected, but the clips I heard, and the fact that that's perceived by participants and to a certain extent the host as re reflective of this coach's behaviour. Uh, suggest to me that this is an individual who doesn't know state doesn't manage state has no self-awareness needs somebody to help them reflect and needs help them need somebody to help them understand that they're actually getting in the way of performance not actually helping it the reason i ask and i mean you could you could use an example of, of you know anyone you've seen who is you know not a very nice person that also happens to be a coach and, and i often wonder where at what point does it become about them basically being a dick or them not having good pedagogy because they I don't know maybe good pedagogy goes hand in hand with being a better person because you're self-aware I'm, I'm not sure where that overlap stops or starts so pe pedagogy obviously is about child learning so how can you be a good pedagogue 
you're talking about the technical aspects of coaching, aren't you? Their technical capability as a coach, right? But actually pedagogy wraps in all these things. So connection and your ability to engage and your ability to draw information or enable performance, enable improvement. I mean, fundamentally, that's our, go our gig, yeah, right? Let's help somebody get better at stuff a bit. I actually think it's also a bit more than that. But let's say one of the aspects of coaching is about helping people get better at stuff. Uh, and you're not doing that or you know so that's an individual who is not just that that's the a dick that's they're the also a you can't be a dick and be a good pedagogue yeah, yeah. <laughs> but phil yeah. i would say phil i've met some great people some lovely caring people and as soon as i see them coach it's as if it's a different person yeah and okay. i haven't got to the bottom of why i mean generally i think there's one person i haven't been able to change um, but I only had three sessions with that guy over three months. So, but the rest have, and part of it is they haven't realized that actually just be them, just be, I'll make a name up. This isn't one of the coaches, by the way, just be Jimmy, just be Jimmy. Jimmy's phenomenal. Be Jimmy when you coach, because you'll be great. It was almost like they felt this is who I have to be. This is who the fans expect of me. This is what, you know, the players, I need to be tough, bang, bang, bang. I get emotional if they don't get the outcome. So there was, I think sometimes it's not about the person. It's I think sometimes their perception, their fears and their ingrained habits of what they think people expect of them Definitely. to be a coach. Definitely. And, and, and they I compromise their own values. I mean, coaching, coaches are human beings. <laughs> so... Yeah. Like, like any walk of life, we're kind of a balance between our character and our competence of that particular thing. So you can have a brilliant bus driver who's a dick. And, you know, you can have a really nice guy who can't drive a bus. So it's the same with coaches who are um, a balance of both what they can do and also the kind of person that they are. Um, but I do think that usually because, in my opinion, coaching is a, an emotional connection as well as a kind of a knowledge one but it's an emotional connection between the players and the coach. Um, and for that reason, I think a lot of players lose that connectivity when the, the coach is an asshole. And they, it's not because they're technically lacking. They might be brilliant. And I'm sure, Mark, you've seen them all. Um, and where you see someone who is technically incredible, phenomenal knowledge, mm. but is not liked and is not trusted and is dishonest. And those kind of things are what will absolutely lose you the dressing room rather there than is, uh, a competence. On that subject, Colin, sorry, sorry, Phil, I know we're supposed to move on a bit, but on that subject, I think there's a really important point there, which is there is a big difference, I think, between somebody who's a dick and somebody who is tough and somebody who has high standards and somebody who holds people accountable to the goals they've set for themselves and all those sorts of things. There's a very, very big difference, right? And perception can sometimes get that wrong, which is why the, the observer sometimes gets that wrong. And there's actually a later podcast that really, really touches on that. And I still can't quite work out whether that coach is a dick or is actually somebody who, is, who makes a difference. But what I would say is, is that it made me reappraise things because you've got an individual who's very tough, very rigorous, but also extremely caring and extremely loving. And actually the toughness is act, actually an act of love. So in, but it, you have to understand that to really get to the bottom of actually that individual isn't a dick. You might think they are being a dick. They might act in ways that are actually a bit dick-like, but actually it's an act of love. I think that's, that's possible. absolutely agree with you. And it, 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 it lines with parenting. And I'm sure my 13-year-old daughter is, probably thinks I'm a dick sometimes, but at the same time, fundamentally, there's trust there. 
And I yes. think that trust for me is a core element of this, that if, you, if the players trust that you're in it for the right reasons and to help, um, then they can get over you being tough. It's when you lose that trust aspect that they go, everything then becomes kind of you know, conflated. Um, so yeah, absolutely agree. Um, and I think you know, we've all probably even in our, in our teams over the years and, and certainly national coaches have seen people who would be considered to be tough but still, if you ask the players, they say phenomenal love to this person because and that's why that P- that's why PDS is so powerful. Advert for Mark, right? Because it helps you to have the skill and capability to hold people accountable to goals they've established for themselves and be be rigorous with that and be you'd use the phrase relentless, Mark. Be relentless with that, right? Which is a very very important thing, without becoming that other thing. And I think it's an important skill set that is not taught to very many, many people and more coaches need to, act, uh, need to learn it. And it's not easy and it takes a long time and I still haven't mastered it, but I'm still trying to get better at it. There you go. Love it. Collie, we're coming to you. Uh, what, uh, what content are you going to be discussing? Okay, so um, referring back to what someone mentioned earlier on about being inquisitive about a lot of different areas and different fields and, and you know, fascinated to kind of pick up little bits and pieces. Um, the thing I'm looking at is Freakonomics. Um, so the book Freakonomics was released around 2005, 2006. And it's a book by an economist um, called uh, Stephen Levitt and a New York Times journalist called Stephen Dubner. And the, the kind of subtitle to the book is the Exploring the Hidden Side of Everything. And I've all, for a long time, I've been fascinated about the connection between the business world and sport. And, you know, um, retired sports people often have a nice living after they retire by being called in to give corporate talks about what it was like and perseverance and durability and goal setting and all this. And the reason I think that it prevails is because people have got a fascination with sport. I mean, we're very lucky and I'm blessed every day to to work uh, in sport professionally. But for the ordinary public, sport is something that they love, that they're passionate about. And therefore, when they see that in the business environment, it's interesting to them to see their heroes who are talking, you know, in the, in the corporate setting. So uh, I was so interested in the whole idea of, of this connectivity between business development and sport that I actually went back to college a couple of years ago. I just did a diploma and um, part-time course. And what, what intrigued me was the title was Coaching and Consulting. Um, so I went into the class, first of all, and after doing a few introductions, I realized I was the only person who was not a HR manager in the course. It was entirely composed of HR managers. So I put my head down and said, oh, this is going to be horrible. <laughs> I am going to be terrible at this. And the first few talks um, and presentation, we had some great lectures, and they were talking about things like progression, and strategy, and um, feedback, and thinking this sound this language sounds similar to me and it really opened up my eyes to the kind of again to that that connectivity between the corporate world and and business and and sport so free economics are kind of tied into all of that and there's been several books um they followed on free economics with super free economics and they ask questions about how basically return on investment applies to ordinary life. So being the economist, he's talking about basically um, the the driving force for most people are incentives. So what what are people, why do we do what we do? We do it for some sense of reward, whether that be material or whether it be um, 
something that we get that's internal and that that's meaningful to us. So that idea of a return on investment um, is kind of core to the whole theory of economics. But they ask kind of kind of mad questions like about why do sumo wrestlers cheat? And that was one of the first things in in the first book, which was and and when you if you if you have a look at it, and uh, there's a whole background into how the ranking of sumo wrestlers and it comes to a certain point where you only have to win a certain number of matches in a season to progress to the next level and each level you progress you get more money so there comes an incentive at some point to actually lose to somebody because you've already achieved it and there's a lot of bribery that goes on so that i can bribe mark to lose because he has an incentive to take the bribe because he's already achieved what he needed to achieve he's already got to the next level so there's a lot of kind of interesting questions about that um, there's um, questions like about why real estate agents aren't motivated to sell your house for the best price. And there's this idea that they would have to put in a huge amount of work to get a small um, investment. So looking at all of that, the, the one episode that kind of stuck out for me that really kind of delved into something in sport that I was very interested in is episode 363, and it's called Think Like a Winner. So this is available on, on Freakonomics.com and you can look it up or just Google um, Freakonomics Think Like a Winner. And it talks about confidence and how players are more than just a physical um, entity. And what is it that prompts people and prompts athletes and players and teams to perform excellently when other teams seem to fall apart? And it's not just about mental skills. They're trying to tap into this idea of being prepared and being able to recognize patterns and to recognize what you're seeing in front of you. And it kind of tips into the, the stuff that Mark and, and Stuart have been talking about already, which is the, the coaching environment and the playing environment so the players feel confident to try things. Um, one of the key um, things that really made me like this episode a lot was that they do a piece on the Philadelphia Eagles, which is my NFL team of choice. And and they refer to, and I skipped thumbs up from Stuart as well, so we've got two Eagles fans maybe. Um, but there was a Super Bowl 2018 when the Eagles played and the New England Patriots who were dominated the sport for, for so many years. And the Eagles were massive underdogs. Um, and they pulled off a play just before halftime. And again, this is, I think you can see this on YouTube, called the Philly Special. And the Philly Special um, was a kind of a trick play and it was described as something that you might do in kind of on um, Thanksgiving in your back garden with your family and just try to pull it off to, to make it look, uh, you know, for a bit of fun. But it was a play that was called between the second string quarterback at the time and the coach. And the, the player, Nick Foles, was the quarterback. He stood in for an injured first string player quarterback. And he came over to the coach and you can hear this on, on the audio. And he says, do you want Philly special? And the coach thinks for a second and goes, yeah. Now, they were on the one-yard line against the dominant team, massive underdogs, just coming up to halftime, and had already been stopped three times on the, on the line. Um, so they pulled off this real kind of intricate trick play that came off perfectly and went in 22-12 um, leaders at halftime and subsequently went on to win the Super Bowl for the first time in like 60 years. So... It, it interests me when they were talking in, in this Freakonomics episode about what was it that prompted it. And there was a massive amount of faith that the coach had in the players to be able to do that. I mean, ultimately, it is going to reflect on him as the, the head honcho of the team. 
And when the player said, do you want this? He could have easily said, no, you know, let's just take the three points. Let's just, just go in. Um, but he didn't. And I think that the faith that he showed in that was, was a reflection on both the emotional connection that he had with his players, but also his faith that they had, he had adequately prepared them for these eventualities. And that for me is a training environment um, that's a result of a positive training environment where you can actually say, let's empower the players to make these decisions. And empowerment isn't just about letting them off to do whatever they want. It's, it's structuring it in such a way that they can actually solve those problems that they see. But then it's down to perception. What are we seeing? What's happening in front of us? And how can we best solve this particular puzzle? And the way that they solved it was a play that they had never done before. They had never played it before. He was a second string quarterback. And in fact, he'd never even caught a pass before, even through all of his college career and, and, uh, and the NFL career. And here he was, the quarterback actually catching a pass that was, that was thrown to him for another player. So that episode um, and many others, they do a whole thing about the hidden life of sports. I would strongly recommend people have uh, a listen to it. And it, it's certainly something that I go back to regularly. And there's a whole host of different, um, different topics as well that are discussed in it. Oh, well, there's a few things there, Colin. Too many. So let's break a few down. You wonder when you look at that in that type of relationship is, uh, we mentioned it earlier, is now one thing we didn't mention earlier, and Stuart might chuckle because I listened to one of his podcasts, I think it was a volleyball guy, and I was laughing all the way through it, Stuart, um, a US volleyball. I think it was volleyball. I don't, I don't like using the word, getting players or coaches to use the word try unless you're scoring in rugby. I want players to take away the fear and go, success is not outcome. Success is committing to a choice. So don't try, just go for it. So I, I feel, and it's some people will be fine, it's interpretation, but my interpretation is to try as an option of a cop-out. I'll try, as opposed to, no, let's, let's agree what success is. Success is you're committing to that choice with no expectation of out. We're not even going to look at the outcome. That's success for us. So just commit to that. So it's interesting when you look at these environments that seem to take away the fear from a player, go, look, if, if we're going for this, we're all going for it. And there's the expectations kind of gone. Of, it's not failure if it doesn't work off. We just go, let's just commit to our thing. And then there's that element of predictability, isn't there, Colin, where you're thinking, is that coach looking tactfully and saying, right, in this moment now, the, the plays we're doing, they have sussed. Now, what can we do that they're not going to expect that is going to give us an advantage in this? And then again, okay, yeah, let's do this. They're not going to – there's no – predictability within this now the players have the freedom just to go for it and commit without fear you wonder how much of that has come from the training environment of how they've built that up within the players yeah and 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 because I, I watched this live obviously being an eagles fan and, and I, I i'm screaming at the television take the take the kick take the kick you know you've been stopped three times and and it was it was all of the evidence you know, outside of that player bubble would tell you that that was not the smart thing to do. But I love what you said about that idea about let's just commit to it and go for it. And that that comes from, I think it comes from that, that faith in one another. And it also comes from this thing of, look, if it doesn't go, if it doesn't work out as we hope, at least we've tried it and we've implemented yeah. it. Um, and the fascinating thing for me was that they had never done that before. I mean, it was on their playbook. And as you know, you know, you've got maybe 50 or, or 500 different, different calls. Um, they'd never called it before. So it was just, 
And I don't know what the answer is about why they actually did it. But Peterson, the, Doug Peterson is the head coach. Um, he just said that, you know, what were we going to lose? What, what, what's the problem? And uh, he trusted it when once the quarterback had, had said it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I really like that idea about success, being committing to something. And then after that, we can pick apart the pieces afterwards yeah. and, and see whether everyone kind of bought into it in the first place. I mean, if, that, if it hadn't worked out, would it have been the wrong decision? I'm going to say no, because if you, I think go back to Mark's point, if you commit to it, if you're as a coach, if you're comfortable and you've discussed risk reward and you're all on the same page, and you understand that. I don't think so. I list best best podcast I listened to in lockdown was Annie Duke. So she's a professional poker player and she talks about resulting, which is basically just focusing far too much on the outcome. So she would put it in poker terms and go, you could do everything like textbook perfect, but the the last the um the river card is not the one you need and someone else beats you. So there's so many intangibles, there's so many things you're not in control of when they throw that ball, if it lands in his hands and he scores, everyone will result and go, oh yeah, great decision, fantastic. And she actually talks about there must be another one, another Super Bowl final where they, they, rather than running it, they throw it. And it, they're not a throwing team. And the, the headlines the next day were, is not just, is this the worst decision in Super Bowl history? Is this the worst decision in professional sports? And all they were doing was basing that off the result because it didn't happen, not that actually the process that got them there was a really sound thinking. Um, so I, I would definitely say no. But, the, other guy but that, that, the reason I asked the question is that's another example, in my opinion, of uh, some of the narrative around performance sport, uh, incorrect narrative, in my opinion, media-driven, um driving behaviors at grassroots level because that's the thing that people observe so you know it's it's the classic counterfactual isn't it i mean who knows right so any number of things could go wrong you know but the fact that they call they called a play it was a slightly different type of play for that given situation uh, than the norm the, the you know the orthodoxy and and it's seen as being unique and brave and you know when it comes off it's like oh it's genius but if it fails and the eagles who so des you know so desperately wanted to win having had 60 years of pain etc cetera, etc cetera, and as a long-suffering eagles fan i totally understand that um you know uh, if it hadn't come off and they'd lost the super bowl to the to the all-conquering patriots because they did take that what well, you know they, they didn't take the safe option of kicking a field goal or whatever it might be then you know, it's cru they're crucified. They're crucified as being, you know, failures. The decision making was all wrong. What, what, in what, what was, you know, what on earth, you know, possessed them to do something along those lines? You know, and, and the balance is purely and simply the bounce of the ball or somebody not making a read or the, the throw being slightly off and, in, and all those myriad variables. And yet, everything leading up to that was probably 100% correct. And so I, I do get frustrated and I really hear what you're saying earlier, Colin, when you were talking about the narrative of elite sport becoming pervasive. And I don't think it is the narrative of elite sport. I think it's the narrative that people create around elite sport who aren't actually in it. Mm. 
you know, because that coach, had it not gone wrong, would probably turn around and say, you know what, I made the same decision every time again. Why? Because my player, I knew that if I made a different decision to what the players were, they're likely not to perform it because they weren't, weren't 100% committed to it. They made that decision. So why would I want to get in the way of that? But fortunately, too much of the narrative around elite sport is driven by completely irrelevant things. But yeah. people listen to it. Yeah, and I, and I think as well, I mean, ultimately we were saying that if it hadn't come off, well, you know, people wouldn't have wasted too much time saying, well, that was, you know, that was a, a waste. He shouldn't have done that. He should have just taken the points. He should have, should have, should have, should have. I mean, the question from us is, or for us is, is was it a valid call? And it's the same in, in rugby. Was it a valid option? And yes, it absolutely was. I mean, it was, they had never done it before, but was it an appropriate call? Yes, it was. The, the thing that interests me in relation to that particular episode was that talking about the, and there's other examples. I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the Eagles one because that's the one that, that kind of resonated with me most, but there's a couple of baseball ones and gymnastics as well in that, in that same episode about having the confidence to try something when really your, your connection to whether it's going to come off or not is very tenuous. It hadn't certainly been practiced to any great extent. It hadn't been modeled to any great extent, but it was in there somewhere in the bank. To be able to to select that and attempt it, I think is an interesting reflection both on the relationship that the coach had with his players and their sense of confidence and their ability to do something that they hadn't done, that they're cobbling together, you know, that they're working together to make it happen now, as opposed to something that's been kind of engendered and robotically performed. It's more, let's just play it as we see it. Um, and I think that's actually one of the things that interests me most about American football is that it I perceive it to be, and it seems to be a lot more programmed than we would hopefully like rugby or other more open sports to be. And that there's very little decision-making apart from maybe the quarterback making that throw. And I know there's more to it than that, but just from a, in comparison to rugby, it seems to be more structured and more dictated as opposed to being more flowing and try to, to make, it, um, make it happen as, as in the midst of the play. Well, I had a rugby story and I'll be quick, but I think it's really good to tie in Go with that. Not to finish with, if that's okay. So Bath Rugby, I, I, don't, I can't remember if it was the first or the second season I worked with them, but it was a game that actually, it was the last play of the game pretty much. Um, there was a, Bath had the penalty, they were in the, 20, in the opposition's 22, and all the coaches, I'm still with the coaches, and they're going, right, yeah, kick, need a kick now. We win the game, we get the three points. However, the guy on the pitch, I can't remember who it was, called for this we'll take the scrum and you can hear all the coaches and i'm listening to them going what well, you know but actually if they'd have scored from the scrum they'd have got a bonus point they'd have won but they got the bonus point win the fourth try and they went into the scrum and the the call the ref called the scrum and he gave the ball to the opposition therefore that was a game over didn't get the bonus point didn't get the three points to win the game so you can hear the coaches and they're going, why, why didn't they take the kick? Why didn't they take? And I'll just ask them, says, well, just ask the players based on the principle. So you could tell them a bit wound up. They went down and spoke to the lead players and said, you know, why did you take the scrum? And the guys in the scrum said, we just felt we had them. The last few scrums, they were weak. We just had the confidence that we could have just rolled them. That we, we knew we could. And we don't believe the ref made the right call. That arm went down, but that's why we made the decision. And in that moment then, that, that's where it changed the coach's view of that process going, right, that's quantifiable. Okay, that's thanks for the judgment. Now, the scary thing was, if that was the first season, I can't remember, they, they were in fifth place by one point. 
then made the playoffs as they scored one point that season. So you can you can pick one thing in one game, but that's not real anyway, is it? There's a culmination of decisions in any game. It's never one decision. It's rarely one decision because there could have been other decisions that would influence score lines. But that's a great example of actually allowing players to make judgment. But instead of jumping down their neck just because of the outcome, you're inquiring about why did you make that choice? I, I think the biggest thing there for me is actually just ensuring you've had those conversations beforehand. Yeah, like, yeah. You've done your team and you a real disservice if you've yeah. not thought through possible scenarios before yeah. you get to that stage. Even if you're, even if they're a little bit more imaginative than you think they might end up being. Yeah. I think the Sponge Boy went on to say kick, but I didn't. <laughs> so. I am conscious of time, so um, we'll just do what you're uh, recommending very, very quickly. Just a brief uh, throwdown for something for people to go and look at that they might not have seen before. So, uh, Stu, what uh, what are you suggesting people take a look at? Um, well, something they might want to have a little have a little dig into that that maybe they haven't looked at is uh, I got sent a book. Um, and it's a little book and um, it's right on my windowsill here and it's called The Dot. And it was sent to me by, um, uh, by uh, a colleague, friend, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and a little inscription on the side on a post-it note saying, this is the best book about coaching and learning that you'll ever read. It's actually a children's book and I've read it with my daughter and it's got a very powerful message. So I highly recommend it. Superb. Didn't give too much away. I like that bit of mystery. Good stuff. Uh, Collie, what are you saying? Uh, the thing that I'm focusing on and, and recommend anyone who's got any interest in e-learning, uh, there is a uh, conference um, it has been running for a while now virtually. It was meant to be in Anaheim in California, but unfortunately that, that kind of got swept away. Um, and it's the Fusion 2020 conference and uh, it's a D2L. These are uh, e-learning providers who provide uh, the e-learning system to the IRFU. Um, I'm actually presenting on it myself in uh, October and anyone who is an interest in e-learning, if you just have a look for Fusion 2020 and you can uh, sign up, there's um, historic webinars and stuff there and it's uh, certainly an area that's becoming more and more um, a part of my life and professionally and um, yeah, it's prompted me to upskill in areas that I'd never tapped into before so I find it very interesting. Awesome, great stuff, thank you. Mark, what are you saying? I'm going to go a totally different route here, so please tell me off if it's wrong. Um, find, I'd ask everyone if you can, find a coach that's not in your sport. But So if you're rugby, find a soccer, netball, basketball, lacrosse, and film yourself coaching. Take your time notes, send it to them and ask them to do the same, and ask them just to review your coaching, bay, and then catch up for a coffee or a Zoom. And that in itself will be such value to any coach. But find, make sure it's someone that is not in your sport and they'll just discuss the coaching interaction. Love it. A little bit different, but yeah, definitely a great suggestion. So thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to round up the roundup. Uh, we hope you find it useful. Thank you to my three guests for their brilliant insight, gents. It really has been a pleasure. Uh, links to all the content discussed are available in the podcast blurb. Please subscribe, like, and share. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well. Bye.